he actually said to me, Kathy, I am so frustrated with my lawyers. I don't even know what they do all day. They're blocking my launches. I send something through to them and it's like a black box. And like, do they even work? From classes on criminal law to torts, there's a lot that you learn in law school. What this education often misses out on, though, is a key life skill, something that every lawyer needs to have in their toolkit. I'm talking about the ability to change and adapt. And in today's episode, we're going to look at this through the lens of in-house law, legal tech, and even scuba diving at one point. I'm Tyler Finn, head of community and growth at SpotDraft, and today we have Kathy Zhu with us, who was previously the senior director and AGC at DoorDash, and is now the co-founder, CEO, and the GC2 at Streamline AI, a modern intake, triage, and automation system that helps bring visibility and efficiency to both legal and non-legal teams. Besides that, she is a certified rescue scuba diver, and we've connected over our shared interest in diving. Mine's pretty recent, but she's been doing this for a while. So we're going to talk about that uh, and what scuba diving has taught us a little bit later in the episode. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us, and I'm excited to dive into our conversation today. (laughs) Me too. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. Uh, Our team wrote that joke for me. Uh, I'm not that funny myself. To start off, can you give us a little bit of background on how you got into law and in your early days as a lawyer? Did you always know that you wanted to go in-house or is that something you figured out along the way? I didn't even know in-house existed, honestly, for a vast (laughs) period of time. So I'm actually the first lawyer in my extended family. Um, We've got, you know, scientists, doctors, engineers, but no lawyers until me. And the running joke in my family is that when I was growing up and, you know, every kid asks, oh, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? My dad said, well, you have two options. You can be either a doctor or a lawyer. And I was like, dad don't I get choices? And he said, what are you talking about? Those are your choices. That's the choice. You don't want to be a doctor, you can be a lawyer. If you don't want to be a lawyer, you can be a doctor. So so jokes aside, you know, throughout my childhood, I actually really was dead set on becoming a doctor. I really, really, really wanted to be able to help people. And I started undergrad actually with a double major in both biology and English. But some somewhere through the middle of sophomore year, I had this massive epiphany. Um, and what the epiphany showed me was, actually, I was making a wrong decision and I was mm-hmm. really meant to go into law. Could probably spend 30 minutes kind of unpacking exactly what happened. But TLDR, long story short, you could really say that was my first pivot. Um, I dropped my uh-huh. bio degree, finished my English uh, degree, and then went on to law school. And when I was a ju- junior associate at a law firm, that's when I first encountered, you know, all these businesses. I was incorporating them, helping them go through funding. And I was thinking, that's where all the excitement is. Like, that's where all the fun is. Once I was done with a a transaction, they took it forward, right? And all Mm -hmm. this magic happened. And I wanted to get into that. So that's how I uh, joined in-house. Very cool. You use the word pivot. And and we talked as we were preparing for this episode and, and sort of one of the themes that we wanted to get across, uh, something that you found really important throughout your career and, and your life is persevering or, or having some grit during those moments of pivot or moments of transition. 
Tell us a little bit about that. When did you first start to realize that, that you needed to have that, that grit during transitions? Well, Tyler, you know, my family immigrated from China when I was six. We moved to Australia first, and then we moved to England, and then finally we moved to the U.S. That's a lot oh, of continents, wow. right, before yeah. the age of 15. And I learned very quickly that you need a lot of grit, a lot of adaptability. If you were moving like me from a 200-person all-girls grammar school in England mm-hmm. to a 4,000-person public school in Chicago, it's a massive, massive change. But the toughest move was actually way before that, when I left China at the age of six. And in Australia, I was placed in a language school. Overnight, you know, I lost my extended family, yeah, uh, who I'd seen every single day. I couldn't understand a word of English. I was so stressed out that I was actually making myself sick every morning so I could stay home and be like, Mom, I can't go. I can't go to school today. Oh. It was so, so tough on me as a six-year-old. And finally... My mom took two weeks off work so she could sit in the back of the classroom with me to help me get over this period, this really difficult period. But then, you know, what happened after that was every move we did became a little bit easier. And Mm -hmm. it's really taught me how to navigate new environments, new cultures. And in retrospect, I am just so incredibly grateful for that initial very, very difficult experience because it's never been as scary uh, since then yeah. to take on a new job, right? Or to move to a new company. And you've even created some of those transitions for, for yourself. And I think one of the ones that is is most interesting to me and, and I expect will be to, uh, to all of our listeners is that you were at DoorDash, really hot company. You, you sort of climbed through the ranks there after, after working at a firm to lead the commercial legal team you were having a lot of success in a very successful business. And you decided uh, that sort of your calling was to, to jump and, and be a co-founder of Streamline. Tell us about that transition. Was, was it as scary as moving schools or had you steeled yourself over the course of the career to, <laughs> to be right. able to, to make that leap? <laughs> totally. So, you know, what happened around then was I really identified a problem, right, that I experienced at every single company I worked at as in-house counsel. Uh, mm-hmm. One was just the chaos of managing everything pouring in from all sides, from Slack, from email, you know, and not having a centralized place to stay on top of it. And then two was just this tremendous lack of visibility. How much work was I completing every quarter? What was, you know, what was happening? Which business teams are sending me the most work? And obviously that visibility problem got much worse when I started to manage a team. Uh huh. Right. And so I jerry rigged my own system first using just mm. generic free tools. And that's when I had my aha moment and eventually led to, you know, streamline. But the aha moment is that, Hey, the solution could really only exist if an in-house lawyer designed the system. Because legal is so particular in how we work that unless you walk the many, many miles in our shoes, they're just nuances you don't understand, right? Mm-hmm. So I taught myself how to use Figma, which is a design tool. Cool. Um, that was really fun. And then together with you know some of my design friends and who specialize in UX, I came mm-hmm. up with the initial blueprint. I teamed up with my incredible co-founder. So he was really the other missing piece. Once I found this expert who was a product lead, engineering, you know, expert, um, and also had this deep background in AI, 
that's when I realized, oh, yes, we have something here. <laughs> we can yeah. work on together. And Julian actually left his job first to you know, go full time to build the product. I'd be curious to hear about how you found a co-founder just for, for a second. If we, if we divert a little bit away from like a legal conversation, uh, cause I think that's something that so many startup founders have, have trouble with is they've got a great idea. They may even have a little bit down on paper, but, but finding other people to join them in that journey can be tough. So yeah, how did you, how did you find Julian and, and did that make it a little less scary to leave the day to day practice of law and, and join early stage company as the, the CEO? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't think I could have done it, you know, if I hadn't found my, my technical co-founder. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this is the funny part of, um, of the streamlined journey. Funny in that it, it really, really was so incredibly synchronistic. I knew Julian at this time. We were friends. And I, <laughs> over these long dinner conversations, would obviously just be griping about all of the challenges that I was dealing with at work and saying yeah. that I had this just this mountain of work that was growing and all of this pain. And, you know, he actually said to me, Kathy, I am so frustrated with my lawyers. I don't even know what they do all day. They're blocking my launches. I send something through to them and it's like a black box. And like, do they even work? And I got so <laughs> mad at him. I was like, don't even get me started. Do you have any idea how much work we're doing? Like we're drowning. So that's really when we realized, oh, there's a massive visibility problem. I don't think I could ever have sold him into this, right? Because starting a company yeah. is a massive undertaking. It's a pain that he already experienced, personally identified with, and really, really wanted to solve for his counterparts out there. So that's why there's just this really amazing, you know, meeting of the minds. When someone writes the book on, on Streamline someday, that is a pretty incredible origin story. Tell us about like the very early days. You had a product uh, and we're starting to launch it. How exciting was that to, to get going? Oh, it was incredible. Just really couldn't wait to get started. Uh, because when I came on board, you know, we already had five paying customers and they were uh -huh. pretty much all saying the same thing, which is, Hey, Streamline is solving this problem that we've all been dealing with, you know, with chaos and this lack of visibility and not being on the same page with our business teams. And that was a huge validation that yes, you're making the right decision, Kathy. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Tyler, I also knew at the same time, there's just so much more I had to learn to be a successful CEO. But the fortunate thing is that uh, working all these years as an in-house lawyer gave me great preparation for it. Mm -hmm. As many of our listeners will know and identify with, you know, we've done work, right, as in-house counsel with sales, customer success, finance, marketing, basically all of the business teams. And that preparation gives you so much of a head start and advantage because mm -hmm. as CEO of an early stage company, you wear all of those hats. Uh, but yeah. luckily you've already walked, you know, a little bit of the distance, right? Doing the work. So that's why I'm a really firm believer that business minded lawyers can actually make fantastic entrepreneurs. That's really interesting. I never quite thought about. And I mean, you see, you see it in GCs being prepared for and rising up into COO roles these days, into CEO roles within the companies that they might already be in or getting hired to, to do that. That cross-functional preparation actually makes a lot of sense as a sort of journey towards being a founder as well. Plus, you have uh, probably good contacts and outside counsel for the incorporation. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I did it myself. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. One last question for you on the the decision making process to to go all in on on Streamline. Was there an inflection point where you decided to commit? Did you consult a lot of people? What what did that process of deciding to to do it? What did that look like? Yeah, so, you know, I actually have not told this story publicly many times. So you have you have the exclusive here. Um <laughs> But it's a, it's a little bit of, of a sad part in the story where I actually experienced this really huge personal tragedy. Um, so I lost mm-hmm. a family member during this time and someone mm-hmm. who was really, really close to me to a terminal il- illness. And I was actually on leave to care for her before she passed away. Mm-hmm. And that's what gave me a break, you know, from work. Sometimes when you're just blogging into work day in and day out, it's kind of hard to step back and just see the bigger picture. And that's what I got, the perspective, the bigger picture um, on, mm-hmm. on life. And, you know, it's such a cliche. We hear this constantly, I think, you know, life doesn't last forever. You have to, you know, really make the mm-hmm. most of every moment. But we don't really pay attention to that, right? It's, it's, it's a very, very different reality when you literally see it happening before your eyes. So I actually didn't even consult anyone about this massive decision. I just knew after I got this perspective, this break, that Mm -hmm. this is what I was meant to do. And, you know, I knew that a massive challenge was before me, but I looked back at all the other challenges, just like the theme of what we're talking about today, right? I looked back at all the challenges that I already weathered, including helping this family member through this incredibly difficult thing for for her and for myself. And I saw that if I could make it through all that, I could take on this new challenge as well. That's amazing. Let's turn to a slightly lighter topic. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really incredible sort of origin story. Thank you for sharing it with us. As we were preparing for the episode, one of the things that that we we bonded a little bit over, um, and that I think informs your mindset, the mindset that you bring to that you bring to work every day, is your love of scuba diving. Uh, let's leave the the law for a minute. Tell us about how you found scuba. So I'd always known about it because I loved to snorkel, and I actually actively, you know, would look for vacation spots where I could engage in snorkeling. And I mercilessly mocked the scuba divers whenever I saw them. <laughs> so, so and <laughs> yeah, they look ridiculous, right? They're like way, way down by all this gear. They're sweating and suffocated, like under their really <laughs> thick wetsuits. It's like Hawaii. Like, why, why are you, you know, even putting yourself through this? But I have since learned not to laugh at something that I don't know anything about because it totally came back. <laughs> Um, so when, when friends of mine, um, who are very, very experienced divers or actually master divers, they finally convinced me just to give it a shot. When I was on a trip one time, I finally understood why people really, really get addicted to it. Because Mm -hmm. when you are, you know, 70 feet deep in the ocean, you just feel like you're in a completely different world. Your life, like all of your worries, all of the stories, right, that we're so engaged in, like the drama of our lives, like that just seems like a million miles away. And mm-hmm. 
you're in the middle of this just vast expansive blue that goes on forever and all the fish that are just like swimming around you. It's entirely, entirely magical. And what was it like for you, Tyler? I mean, you told me that you just, you know, recently, right, got into all of this. Yeah. Uh, and I probably, I don't have all the gear like you. I've only done it a few different times, but I, I'm very lucky. I was going to Southeast Asia first for some work and was going to do some personal travel there. And I thought, well, I can't go to these places and miss out on the opportunity to to try this. I've, I've always heard about it. Seems kind of cool. And so I went and I, you know, I did my very sort of basic certification on Catalina Island uh, in California. I think that sort of diving is actually very cool because I like being in the kelp forest. Uh, I think that's really kind of beautiful and, and peaceful. And the diving that I did in Southeast Asia absolutely blew me away. And I think now, like you, I want to travel to places uh, where I can have that experience of being in an under, like being in, in an aquarium, <laughs> yeah. basically, uh, and, and like the number of fish and the color of the coral and all that is going to drive uh, some of the places that I go. In addition to the beauty of the beach or the culture, it's like it's a whole new way to to see the world. It's it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is also something that, that you, you brought up to me that you feel like it shaped you as a, a leader, um, as a lawyer, the way that you, you know, conduct yourself and run your business. And, and you've gone all the way to be a rescue diver. And, and, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that journey, too. How do you think that it's it shaped you as a as a leader? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, you know, a requirement before uh, you can even go on your first dive, which you'll remember from your experience right on Catalina Island, you had to attend a class beforehand because diving is very, very technical and they need to teach you so you survive. Um, And for, for example, not to scare anyone out there, one of the most important things that they keep repeating over and over is do not, whatever you do, do not hold your breath. Because your lung is like a balloon, right? It expands um, and it reacts to pressure. And as you get deeper, the pressure intensifies. And you know what happens to a balloon if you keep adding Mm -hmm. more and more air, if it doesn't equalize. It's a problem. I won't get too (laughs) graphic with this. It's a little (laughs) intense. But let's just say when I learned about all this, I wasn't very excited at all about what I was about to do because it seemed like my life was in danger. (laughs) Um, But that's when I had another really big realization, right? I realized that, hey, in order to stay calm when you're dealing with that life or death, kind of literally like that kind of pressure, while you're managing very complicated equipment, it builds incredible mental strength and equanimity. And if you think about in a business context, right, when something is really stressful and you've got the situation on your hands, and as lawyers, we deal with that all the time, the people that you want to be in that room with are actually really calm, right? They're collected. And because of that, they're able to actually identify the crux of the issue. They're able to come up with a solution, and then you look around the room and all these other people are like flying off the handle or you know, being overly <laughs> emotional. And you're like, oh, I know who I want to follow. Like not them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So these are actually the skills that you develop in scuba diving. And the other really important thing I learned is the enormous benefit of actually facing your fears because it, believe it or not, becomes easier and easier the more you do it. Mm-hmm. And if you run away from your fear, it 
basically always keeps following you. You can't actually yeah. run away from it, right? But if you can overcome it, that's when you can experience amazing things like scuba diving. Um, and that's yeah. totally been my experience. I totally agree with that. And and I'll tell you just a very short, short story about how remaining calm is is so important. Just you have an instructor and one of the things the instructor often wants you to be able to do is to continue to breathe and to like change scuba masks with them underwater. And so, of course, for a period of time, you can't really see them, right? They may not be able to see you. You're going to be close enough to do this sort of exchange. But, you know, just for a minute, under 15 feet, 25 feet down underwater, right, you're going to lose one of your primary senses. And I can tell you that the first time that I did that, I was very stressed about it, of course, right? And uh, I noticed that like my heart rate went through the roof and I started breathing. And I was like, and I actually, for a period of time, held my breath, which is what you're not supposed to do. And then you're reminding yourself, start breathing again. By the second time that you do that, you're like, oh, wait, this is going to be easy. I'm just going to close my eyes. All I have to do is focus on my breathing. And the whole sort of exchange the second time around went much more smoothly. So I- I'm right there with you in, you know, one of the one of the lessons being under pressure or sort of in a stressful situation. I think it it, it teaches you a new way to focus on the essentials and kind of block out other distractions and and, you know, bring yourself down and remain calm. Yeah, exactly. Something for you to look forward to in your rescue diver training is you'll actually be doing that <laughs> underwater trying to save somebody <laughs> at the same time. So anyhow, you don't have to think about that yet. <laughs> it, it, it could always be harder, right? Uh, the challenges that's, yeah, that are thrown at you could always be harder. Well, clearly, you know, scuba has, has taught you quite a few things about tackling really hard challenges. We both work for companies uh, that I think are tasked with tackling really complex, implementation-heavy challenges. And, you know, this is complicated stuff. Talk for us for a minute about, you know, how your background as a lawyer informs the product development process at at Streamline, how you think about things like user-centricity as you iterate on the, the solutions that Streamline offers. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think when it comes to enterprise tooling, a really challenging thing for product designers is to be able to see the world through the user's eyes, right? If they've actually never done work in the user's role before. Mm-hmm. So what they need to do is to conduct a lot of you know, user interviews and try to incorporate the feedback. But there's always an element of it that's secondhand. I think for a lot of us who've used, you know, legacy clunky software, not designed by lawyers. We know how that feels, right? Um, so the neat thing that we've really been able to do at Streamline is to leverage my experience from both doing work on the front lines as well as leading a team and really baking that perspective into the functionality. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can't always conduct a fully fledged user interview every time you build a new feature, but my CTO can come over to me and be like, hey, Kathy, what do you think about this new thing we're about to build? So it makes, makes things a lot easier. Yeah, I think a big part of being CEO of a company like this is, is helping set product direction. And you have the benefit of bringing you know, your own experience to bear. But have there been things that you've had to learn about the product development process now that ultimately you're really responsible for, for the output and, and for making sure that it's headed in the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. 
I'm just so incredibly lucky, honestly, to have in my co-founder, someone who's had 15 years of experience in both product and engineering. And now also learning everything I've learned and talking to all these other founders, I understand it's very rare for both of those things to live inside the same body. I never knew that before. They're usually two separate people who actually like, you know, have some conflict. Let's just put it that way. They don't always see eye to eye. So it's very helpful that it's in one person for us. Um, and he also just never shies away from asking the hard questions. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is very, very helpful because he has no qualms about challenging me on something <laughs> and really probing, you know, hey, Kathy, is that actually you know, something that applies across the board to all of our customers? Or did you come up with that perspective based on the very kind of unique and particular ways that your team was set up, right? Or that you Mm -hmm. interacted with your business teams. And those have been eye-opening experiences, really like, you know, aha moments for me. And also, quite frankly, our customers have done a tremendous amount in helping us shape our product. That's one of the huge advantages to working with an early stage company as a customer is we don't know everything, right? So we need to rely on our customers. I'm sure you've experienced this at Spot Draft as well to tell you, like, this is actually how I prefer to use it. You're missing this. I'd love it if you could build that. And the first, you know, at five to 10 customers really, really helped us to shape Streamline. I'm also curious about the call it the the sales side of this as well. You're thinking about product development. You're wearing that that the you well you're bringing to bear sort of all the experiences that that you've you've had. You know there are also frankly in the legal tech market there can be a bit of of noise um, as you're evaluating these offerings. I'd love to to give our listeners a little bit of a, a lens or or your view on how they should be evaluating this market and the different solutions that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. It's so timely. It's like you read our minds. So we actually <laughs> just yesterday uh, released our intake and workflow software buyer's guide where it goes into a ton of detail, actually lays out exactly what it is that you should be thinking about, how you should be approaching this. So for all the listeners out there, if you'd like a copy of this, please reach out to me. We'll put um, it in the show notes too, if we can, or a link. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. We would we'd love that. Thank you. So what we're really trying to do, as you can see, is, is shine a light on the problem, um, educate the market on how to solve that problem so that they can do their own evaluation. I think, you know, this has probably been said many times. If you do your homework as a buyer and you do your research, you are so much of a better buyer. You'll be able to um, ask the right questions and run a very streamlined and efficient evaluation process because, frankly, like no one really wants to be sold to, right? Especially lawyers. (laughs) Our knee-jerk reaction is, oh, you think you're being sold to? Just shut that down. Like, I do not want to hear this. Um, I do want to just say this for the listeners, though. There can be something sometimes in an outreach email that catches your eye, right? And it actually speaks to a very deep pain you have. And that is actually worth following up on. Um, and I'll bring a personal story very, very quickly into there. Mm-hmm. I actually bought technology while I was at DoorDash that ended up rolling out, not just to the legal team, but to the entire sales organization, like literally thousands of people across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, based on a cold email that I, that I received. 
Wow. That cold email became famous with that software company because it totally, <laughs> it, it worked, right? They spoke to the exact pain. I was, you know, literally like up at night worrying about this issue and they said yeah. they could solve it. And look what happened. It ended up being this fantastic partnership between the two companies. It's That's not amazing. always evil. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, I, and I do think, you know, part of that is also trust that the person is going to resonate with with that sort of real sort of idea or substance that's being brought to bear. You know, in a past life, I have bought a couple different types of like privacy and data governance software before, right? And the folks who, who came and, you know, really tried to talk about, okay, what are your problems? How might we address them? As opposed to those who came to me and said, the CCPA is going into effect. If you don't use our software, you're not going to be compliant. If you don't have a solution, you're not going to be compliant. I, I almost wanted to say, you know, like, well, I'm paying someone $1,500 an hour to give me legal <laughs> advice that says that I will be okay <laughs> after after this, even without your software. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. It, yeah, it's it. And so, you know, like approach, approach people who you're selling to or trying to sell to or build relationships with like, like they're smart people, like they know what they're doing, right? Kind of segues into into my next question here for you, actually, which is, you know, I'm sure there are some folks out there who are thinking, why would I why do I need to bother with a tech solution here? You know, I've, I've jerry rigged uh, something myself between Jira or Excel spreadsheets that feed are fed by Google Forms or what have you, you know, tell us a little bit about how you respond to that. And, and also, I think there's there's a there's a sort of theme in there, which is which is around, you know, change, right? And if you're if you're in a business, and maybe you haven't procured a tech solution before, how do you maybe change your mindset a little bit to, to think about what else could be possible? Um, what else might be out there? Yeah, absolutely. So this might be a bit involved. So just bear with sure. me. Um, yeah. Because First, I think it's very easy for me to say the thing that I'm sure the audience has heard many times. It's like a broken tape, right? You know, if legal teams don't figure out technology, they're going to get left behind. Their jobs might get replaced. If not by AI, it'll be by the lawyer who figures out how to use AI, right? And the scaremongering we've all heard, um, I think that what I would like to do, okay, is offer a slightly different perspective. So sure. there's there's a very, very often quoted book about building tech companies called Crossing the Chasm. Um, and it's written by Jeffrey Moore. And in that book, he discusses the tech adoption lifecycle, which is just as applicable to legal tech as it is to general software. So in that life cycle, you've got the innovators and early adopters, right? Those are the people who will jump on the spot drafts and the streamlines very early. They get great benefits as a result. They get white glove service. They get great prices. They get their suggestions actually incorporated into the product, mm -hmm. right? Then you've got the pragmatists. Those are the people who are going to watch and wait until sure. the majority of the industry comes on board, right? Um, it's vetted, de-risked. And then finally, you've got the laggards who will resist for as long as possible, finally come kicking and screaming. And most of the market's probably mm -hmm. moved on by then. So I think my opinion on, on this, my recommendation for the audience is you look at that life cycle and decide what part you want to be part of and understand why, right? Actually, like make sure it's a conscious decision rather mm -hmm. than just wanting to ignore the whole thing because, you know, it's happening regardless, right? Like all of this change and you at least like at the very least should be 
making a conscious decision, even if it is adopting it later and understanding why. Maybe it's your industry. Maybe it's actually, you know, your your business teams. And I do on that note want to also point out that sometimes this resistance to change isn't just because it's legal um, and the legal sure. mindset, right? You probably know this, Tyler. It's the business teams who are like, legal doesn't get new technology. We're not going to give you the budget to buy yeah. the new technology, right? And I think in that case, you know, they're just losing such a huge opportunity to really leverage legal as a business partner. So the the mindset here that needs to shift isn't just legal. It needs to actually start at the very, very top with the CEO mm-hmm. on how to resource legal adequately. Yeah. As we start to wrap up, I wanted to to give you the opportunity to share a piece of advice around this theme of breaking the mindset of resisting change, or I think maybe put even more positively, right? Like, how can you position yourself best to embrace change that, that might be inevitable all around you? Yeah, exactly. Well, first of all, I think, you know, just identifying what your internal dialogue is telling you so that it's not just, you know, an unconscious thing that's happening, right? I think it's very natural in the face of uncertainty to try to grasp onto what's familiar, what's safe, and that's usually the status quo. But what we often don't realize is that change is happening. Just like I said, right? It's already happening. And it's much better to be able to direct the flow of change be, you know, the CEO, right, of your own life rather than having the change forced upon us. So I think that's it. That's the first step is identifying the root cause of the resistance. What is going on with your inner narrative? And then you can actually work on shifting it if you realize that it's holding you back. Kathy, thank you so much for coming here and sharing some really candid and reflective stories and and insights with our audience. I've I've really enjoyed this. I hope someday we might be able to go scuba diving together. I think that would be a lot of fun. Me too. Uh, and I would know that you'd be able to keep me safe as a rescue diver. <laughs> too. Exactly. It won't come to that. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on today, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. And uh, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for, for listening to this episode with Kathy. And we hope to see you next time on the next episode of The Abstract. Thanks for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe so you can get notified as soon as we post a new episode. And if you liked this one, I'd really love to hear your thoughts. So please leave a rating or a comment. If you'd like to reach out to me or our guest, our LinkedIn profiles are in the description. See you all next week.